Hello, my name is Ed Vazian. I'm the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the eighth podcast of Lockdown Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. This week, we slowly start to emerge from lockdown, so we're going to start focusing on what lies ahead. Obviously, we're both very concerned about what the future cultural landscape is going to look like over the next few months. We've heard from many guests over the weeks, like Nick Kenyon at the Barbican or Peter Florence at the Hay on Wi-Fi Festival, Stuart Murphy at the English National Opera, talking about the dire situation that so many cultural institutions are finding themselves in. We thought one of the interesting things to look at in terms of how lockdown culture is developing would be comedy, because comedy always reflects fairly accurately what people are thinking. It's the first time actually on this podcast that we've covered comedy and perhaps that's because uh, comedians have found it difficult to navigate this space. It's difficult to laugh at coronavirus. But we wanted to talk to Emma Brunges. Now Emma is a very well-known producer in the world of comedy. She's worked with numerous well-known comedians, people like Frank Skinner, Jenny Eclair, Russell Howard, Lee Mack, Al Murray, and of course on the wonderful Jerry Springer, The Opera. She's had her own live production company. It's called EBP. I wonder why that is. It was set up in 2013. And she's also been the producer of Dave's Edinburgh Comedy Awards since 2010. Emma, hello. Hello, how are you doing? All good here. I'm in the pub. Charlotte's in her office. Hello, Emma. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, And we're really pleased to have you because... I've always been particularly interested in how comedy reflects the zeitgeist because I think we were talking about this before, immediately after 9-11, I was sent off to America by the BBC to make a documentary about people's reactions to it. And I remember filming in a comedy club where the comedians were absolutely at a loss as to how to be funny. So do you think comedians are ready to be funny about coronavirus now? And if so, who are they? Where are they performing? And how can we watch all listen to them? That's a very big question, Charlotte. Um, (laughs) In short, to answer whether they're ready to respond, I don't think so yet, because I think there's still too many unknowns and uh, still too much sadness. So uh, certainly from what I've seen, they aren't aren't covering it quite yet. And also because uh, they're not in the rooms with the audiences, so it's very difficult for them to respond, which is obviously one of the key arts of a great comedian is responding to the audience response at it at that moment in that time there have been some lovely little um takes russell kane has recently done a brilliant observation of the new etiquette of going to a supermarket which he is brilliant at and very funny so i think there are some sort of light touches but they are not tackling the subject fully yet uh, i expect that will come Uh, when we all get back to Edinburgh next summer. As to where they are performing at the moment, um, every possible corner of the internet that you can find. (laughs) All the major comedy clubs um, uh, are uh, offering great online pop-ups. There are also, coming up in the next months, also um, a variety of drive-in stand-up nights, which I think are well worth people um, plugging into Google and finding all the various options of that. And there's been some really brilliant responses. There's one I've particularly been uh, impressed by, which is called The COVID Arm, set up by a comic called Kerry Pritchard-McLean. And she's had incredible names come on and do stand-up. You can actually pay a bit extra to be on the front row of that gig. So going back to what I was saying about being in the room with the comic, you actually sort of can get as close to as you can at this time and being able to put your hand up and interact with the compare and the comedian on stage at that moment but she uh, she has so many seats that she can have on the front row which is done via zoom what i find interesting about 
comedy at the moment is um, I do think it is possible to laugh at COVID, but or to put it more accurately, to laugh at how people are reacting. I mean, obviously, the government can be mocked. And two of the comics that I follow on Twitter, for example, there's Michael Spicer, who does this hilarious thing where he is pretending to be the advisor to the politician, and he cuts between the politician's speech and himself pretending to talk into the politician's earpiece, and he does these eviscerating takes of politicians. Uh, and there's also a woman in America called Sarah Cooper who does a hilarious, uh, effectively a sort of voiceover of Trump. So she takes uh, Trump's speeches and uh, uh, voices to them with hilarious facial expressions. I mean, social media must be a fantastic vehicle for comedy at the moment. I completely agree. And I've seen Michael's stuff and I think it's great. I saw him uh, take on Paul Pretty Patel the other day. I, but that's all sort of in a way, almost more satire in the traditional sense, is it not? And taking on uh, very public figures. And I think that they aren't necessarily tackling the, the core subject itself yet. But yes, social media is a great platform. But if you like live comedy, and most comedians will tell you there's nothing like it, it's a great stopgap, but it's not a it's missed at the moment. It's not a it's not an end game for them. And so I think one of the biggest if and when we got back to normal, you know, one of the biggest venues for comedians and comedy and particularly new comedians breaking through is the Edinburgh Festival, which, of course, has been cancelled this year. Is that, again, another sort of body blow to the comedy fraternity or is it... Uh, do you expect everyone to be bouncing back in 2021? Body blow is a great word. It is exactly what it feels. I mean, there was a real sense of loss and enormous sadness. And it's impacted many, many livelihoods. To not have the festival, since it's the first time ever, as far as I'm aware, since 1947, that there'd be no festivals uh, in Edinburgh. It's just strange. I mean, even me personally, it's the first time for 16 years I've not gone to Edinburgh in August. I don't, I don't actually know what to do with myself. No. Now, Emma, you've said you were completely brought up on Morecambe and Wise and Tommy Cooper, which led to a love of French and Saunders and Victoria Wood and so on. And then all the sort of absolute pillars of what would be considered classic British comedy. Do you think elements of those classics are still in today's comedy or do you think it's just gone off in a completely different direction? No, I think if you speak to a number of comedians, they will all talk about who their comedy heroes are. And there are certainly many programs that have been created. Um, many comics will reference a lot of uh, a lot of those names and many others. But what's so brilliant about comedy and comedians is how they take that as an inspiration and have over the years developed and explored the art form uh, without wanting to sound too highbrow uh, into the new generation and into their own voices and what I really love about comedy personally is that the bills the mixed bills, the mixed shows you can now see and, and the genre of the of comedy that you can see uh, Edinburgh and beyond is so diverse so you can see a great mime act or performance artist standing alongside a stand-up act um, alongside musical comedy uh, alongside sketch character uh, and they can you know all be as equally funny brilliant well emma thanks very much before you go i wanted to ask you is there a kind of website or a particular comedian's site that you would recommend our listeners go to if they want their dose of Comedy doesn't even have to be coronavirus related. I would say just as a kind of um, catch-all, there are three websites I would say which keep you up to 
to date with all the news and goings on in the comedy world and that is Chortle the British comedy guide Beyond the Joke by the brilliant Bruce Dessau who used to be I'll even give him a name check who used to be the uh, comedy editor at the Evening Standard and, and who is very much loved and revered in our industry Thank you very much to Emma Brundges for giving us such an interesting insight into where comedy is going and I'm sure we'll all want to check out those recommendations she's given us not just because we can all always benefit from laughter but also because no doubt comedians could really do with all the support we can give them because as we know like so much of the culture we've covered on this podcast comedy is a very serious business and we need to do our bit to keep it going our next guest is a woman of rare accomplishment because she was in her teenage years an olympic class sprinter but when she became when she got injured she changed to become a world-class double bass player so i'm delighted to welcome my friend chichi wanoku obe Chichi was the bass player with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, uh, but she's also founded the Cheneke Orchestra and the Junior Cheneke Orchestra, which have been going for about five years. And their mission is to provide outstanding career opportunities in the classical music world to both established and up and coming musicians of colour. The orchestra's motto is championing change and celebrating diversity in classical music. So I'm delighted to have you on the podcast, Chi-Chi. Thank you, Ed. That's such a lovely, nice, friendly introduction. Well, it's <laughs> lovely you. to have you with us, uh, Chi-Chi. <laughs> um, and I know our listeners are going to be absolutely fascinated to hear what you've achieved for both your orchestras in just five years. I actually saw the uh, junior orchestra on Britain's Got Talent in May, and it, it was just amazing to see it going down such a storm. It was such a feel-good performance, and I, I mean, they just wowed the audience, didn't they? they, they did. So can you yeah. tell us um, what the orchestras have been doing since lockdown and when and where we might be able to hear them play either online or live again? Um, well, it's it's uh, interesting that you ask that because I've, I've seen a lot of activity, digital activity from professional orchestras. I haven't seen an awful lot from, from juniors right now. I, there was a couple of NYO um, campaigns that lasted just half a minute. But what our Chinica juniors have been up to, apart from being really excited about how their performance went down on Britain's Got Talent, is... They've been doing fantastic presentations for us where they talk about and describe how they practice, for example, as almost like mini tutorials for other junior players who are not quite at their standard, perhaps. Things like, um, this is how I do vibrato. This is how I don't squeak on the strings or um, percussion exercises. Um, how to practice a piece from the beginning with a slow metronome. And they've actually been doing this as they and demonstrating. And it's just been delightful. As Ed knows, I'm not very risk averse. And when someone says to me that I can't do something, I will do everything in my power, if I believe in something, to try and do the exact opposite, if I, if I believe in something enough. And when we were all told that was the end of our concerts, we weren't allowed to do any more concerts, we weren't allowed to see our colleagues. I mean, that very thing that drives us as musicians is to not just sit in your music room and practice and play for yourself, but and not, not just to play for with our colleagues but to play to real live audiences where we can see the whites of your eyes that that's part of what we do and our, we have a hunger for this so i immediately thought we need to reach out we need to play to as many more people as possible so i reached out across the pond actually and partnered with the sphinx organization that are based out of detroit 
and it's an, that's an African-American and Latin, Latino organisation. And we set about recording a piece of music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor with half of Chinook Orchestra, half of their orchestra and nine conductors on a grid of 81 squares. And that's been a huge success. And there's, there's five minutes of that that you can see on our Chinook YouTube channel. And then we've, well, we did a, a, a tribute to the um, murdered... Um, black Americans recently. We did a Deep River tribute. We've got another chamber music um, performance that's coming up that we're preparing right now. The juniors are going to be doing a huge thing um, where they're doing a you know, full orchestra. There'll be 64 of them, which you'll see digitally in a few weeks' time. But since, but before that, we've been connecting the juniors with the organisation that Marin Alsop, the conductor, she created an, or- an organisation in Baltimore called Orchids. I've been at many WOW meetings, Women, Women of the World meetings that Jude Kelly created uh, several years ago. And during those meetings, Marin would talk about things like how, she, as, as principal con- conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, Baltimore is something like 65, 75% black city and yet there's nobody of colour in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and that hurts her. Actually there's one mixed race cellist who sits at the back. So she created this organisation called Orchids which is for all the black kids across Baltimore. We're also in the process of creating uh, another a partnership with Gustavo Dudamel's orchestra. He has, you know, he's the principal conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic but he's also created a youth orchestra called Yos- Yosa- Y-O-L-A Youth Orchestra Los Angeles and our juniors are going to be connecting with them as well. So really, we've kept them seriously well engaged. It's fantastic that you've kept them so busy. You mentioned the tribute to uh, George Floyd on your on on the website and, and the other victims of racism. I, I watched that. It's an incredibly moving and beautiful bit of music. And I, I just want to ask you a bit about the, you know, you're obviously 100% uh, behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm just wondering if you're already seeing evidence of that movement, giving more people of colour the sense of confidence and empowerment to believe that they can have a successful career in classical music. Charlotte, what I have seen, because it's early days, and as you know, we can't come out the house, we can't walk onto a platform and play at the moment. We're all in lock. We still, I think our industry is going to be one of the last to get back to what 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 hopefully a new normal. What has I've been involved in is some Zoom calls with some of the country's artistic directors, leading artistic directors like the Young Vic, you know, Kwame Kweama, with with leaders of, of Casa Pancho, Ballet Black. To start with, I've never seen so many black grown men and women in tears. And we've had moments of silence because of the shock and the the how we feel brutalised. But there's a, there is, as you say, you know, you asked me, is there a glimmer of hope? There is a glimmer of hope because some people feel, I've, I personally have tried to offer the, 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 the thought that, you know, it, it feels a bit different this time because we've been brutalised for centuries, not just three weeks ago. Um, and we don't want to see this continue for another day. But it feels a little bit more like the Me Too movement which has really drawn massive awareness and I th- I hope has changed some habits. And, you know, because, you know, people, vulnerable people have been sexually abused for since time began. And I think, and I think with, you know, the Kevin Spacey, the, the um, Jeffrey Epstein, etc., has been shocking and has, has created a new awareness and, and a new intolerance to this. 
um, abuse of, of human people. It's fascinating. I mean, I think the key point here is that you've been doing this for five years. So people are suddenly talking because of um, the terrible incidents in the US about this issue. But uh, I think what is sort of perfect in a way is that you've laid all the groundwork. It's not like you suddenly decide yes. to set up Chineke in response to what's happened. You've been doing this work <laughs> for five years. And I think you slightly underplay what you've achieved because obviously, Chi-Chi, you're not, uh, you're not a, a tech billionaire who can spray money around and you also have a full-time job. So Chineke started with you in your spare time and it was stunning to think five years ago how few, if any, people of colour were in our major orchestras and the fact that you had to set up Chineke to bring attention to this issue but also I think Chineke encapsulates what the art sector needs to do because particularly the junior orchestra you have to go back to when kids are eight nine or ten you have to encourage them to stay uh, in music you have to make them believe that there's a career and one way you make them believe there's a career is if they can see people like Sheku who have made a wonderful career. So the fact that you, I wouldn't say you launched his career, that might be a bit, you you would probably regard that as me trying to make you sound arrogant, but you certainly gave him the platform that's now led him to become one of the most successful classical musicians of his age. Uh, and that will have a knock-on effect and will build so that maybe in 15, 20 years time, it simply won't be an issue. You'll go and see a wonderful orchestra and there will be people of colour and people from every background playing because they've been encouraged. But it is a long-term game. It is a long-term game. I think I think you're right about it being a, you know, I'm at the Me Too movement. They called it a cultural reset, didn't they? And I think I think we are facing the same thing now. With any luck, I, let's hope. Let's hope. And I, I certainly know um, lives. So many lives have been changed already through the Chinnake, um Foundation and. We, we, I think no fewer than four of our young professionals have won positions in orchestras now in the UK. So for me, that is a sign of progress. Chi Chi, we've run out of time, but thank you so much. It's a very, very inspiring story. What is the best way for people to get involved in Chineke, particularly if they're young people who want to pursue a career in music and suddenly... Yes, well, the best way is to go to our website, www.chineke.org, and that's Chineke without the explanation, exclamation mark, and and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We've, we've got lots of content going out almost every day. There's something happening nearly every day. We're being even more creative than before. And please You're keep a, a look star. out on your in july on on the tv <laughs> and that's the, all i'm going to say <laughs> thanks oh, that sounds exciting <laughs> thanks gg thank well, you we think we know what you're take talking care. about take care so we are starting to look outwards but that doesn't mean we're all out every single night and we're probably still going to be watching tv a few nights a week for a good time yet now ed and i have been moaning recently that there haven't been too many new series or movies to get our teeth into now that we've both plowed through every single series of fowder and call my agent but suddenly, this week, all that has changed radically and we've got lots of great stuff to recommend. So anyone who likes Big Little Lies is going to love Little Fires Everywhere. It's a new series on Amazon Prime. It's set in the perfect little picture town of Shaker and it stars, obviously, the very well-known Reese Witherspoon, who excels as a brittle, deluded housewife with pretensions. Remind you of anyone? 
but just as brilliant, if not even better, are her co-stars Kerry Washington and Lexi Underwood, who play a spookily mysterious mother and daughter who show up out of the blue and, of course, get caught up with Reese Witherspoon's family. Now, Kerry Washington, who plays the mother, was in the AB series Scandal, which I haven't seen. So to me, she was an absolute revelation, ridiculously beautiful and just such a good actress. So she's she's just extraordinary. She manages to convey a really sinister and enigmatic sense of menace at the same time as apparently being this competent, together, talented artist. I mean, she's really outstanding. And Lexi Underwood, the newcomer who plays her 15-year-old daughter, is also wonderful. So expect to see a lot more of her from now on. And I must say, I'm absolutely gripped already. I've also been enjoying it. And I'm also enjoying Filthy Rich, the documentary series on Jeffrey Epstein, the terrible Jeffrey Epstein. It's gripping viewing in another way because it's weirdly compelling, obviously, to see how money lures people in, prevents them willfully, perhaps, from seeing what's going on in front of their very eyes. And of course, it's very timely given the ongoing debate about Prince Andrew going to the US. Yes, I watched it with my 16-year-old daughter, which was quite something, given that he preyed on girls quite a lot younger than her often. And, you know, we just both found it extraordinary that a man who had the world at his feet and he owned all those homes, you know, mansion in New York, huge apartment in Paris, a ranch in New Mexico, house in Palm Beach, another one in the Caribbean. You know, he risked a lot because he really believed his money could silence all those poor teenage girls he preyed on. It was just the most extraordinary story and interesting that, um, you know, it's become like a sort of, uh, you know, really major myth, you know, sort of not myth, but a sort of fable for our times. I mean, even Chi-Chi was mentioning him. I mean, just awful. Um, yes. So th- it's really worth watching. Talking of money, there's another great film that's released on Amazon Prime tonight. It's Michael Witterbottom's satire Greed, starring Steve Coogan as a lightly disguised Philip Green character. It did come out in the cinemas just before lockdown, but obviously lots of us didn't get to see it in time. So if you missed it, now is your chance. So finally, there is, of course, one film that's absolutely essential viewing, and that's Sitting in Limbo. It did air last week, but it's available on BBC iPlayer for the next 11 months. And given everything that's going on at the moment, it's absolutely not to be missed. It's about Anthony Bryan, a man who moved here from Jamaica with his mother, aged eight in 1965 as part of the Windrush generation. His mother spent 30 years working for the NHS and Anthony raised a family and lived and worked in London for 50 years. It was only when his mother moved back to Jamaica that he decided to apply for a passport so he could go and visit her. And then the horror begins, immigration banging on his door, and the story starts to unfold. Um, Ed and I were talking about it earlier, and we both agree it's almost unbearable to watch as it just makes you so angry and so ashamed of how our officialdom behaves. Um, one of my other day jobs as a journalist um, is has meant I've recently I've been doing an article talking to immigrants who've been detained just as Anthony was. Um, And so I know, sadly, that this story is very far from unusual. It's just really sickening. And it's another, it's brilliant that it's been brought to the fore like this with such a brilliant film. It's actually Anthony's brother who wrote uh, the script and Patrick Robertson, that some of you know from Casualty, stars as Anthony in the uh, drama. And as Charlotte says, it's very, very harrowing to watch. It's the kind of television also, despite it being so harrowing, it actually restores your faith in uh, the BBC, it's exactly the kind of programme they should be make, making. It's thought-provoking, it's unflinching in the way it shines a light on the appalling consequences 
of the hostile environment policy. It made me ashamed, really, that I had been an MP uh, during that time. So that's our recommended watching for the week. And should you, it should keep you busy in lockdown for a little bit longer. But before we go, we just want to flag up next week as we have a real superstar as our guest. Of course, I'm referring to Sir Nicholas Coleridge, the chairman of the VNA, journalist, prolific novelist, 40 years, a major figure in magazines, heading up Condé Nast with titles like Vogue, Tatler, House and Garden, chairman of the British Fashion Council when I indeed was the minister for fashion. There couldn't be anyone who could zero in on the sweet spot of the country and townhouse reader than this bloke. So who and who is better than to give us an overview of where we're headed after lockdown than Sir Nicholas from his Quinlan Terry designed folly in the Arcadia that is Worcestershire. He'll be with us next week. But for now, it's goodbye from Charlotte and it's goodbye from me. And you can find details of everything we've talked about on countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>